So welcome everyone to the second new writing series reading of the quarter and of the year. Um, two of my most very favorite people in the whole wide world and um, uh, some of the best writers living in the whole wide world are here for you today, Tisa Bryant and Rob Robin Cost-Lewis. Um, and to introduce them is our graduate student, April Coletta. Thank you all. Thanks for all coming out here today. Um, it is really kind of a, a pleasure to introduce Tisa Bryant. I found um, her writing to be a fusion of, of criticism, of fiction, and amazing poetic sound and texture. Um, the way it comes together creates and kind of curates language um, into a type of, uh, of something else, a space that is, um, I would say, mythical because it, it may exist, it may not exist on the page yet, or it may not exist until you're reading it on the page and you really take that in. Uh, at least that's how I came to experience her work. Um, Kisa teaches fiction at Cal Arts, um, the MFA program, uh, not too far from here, I think that's right. Um, she teaches fiction and other hybrid forms. Uh, she holds an MFA from Brown. Um, her work and writing have recently appeared in our forthcoming in Animal Shelter, and I all encourage you to look at that. I've seen some previous volumes. Um, it is a, an amazing collection of work from many people. Um, Black Cloth, Bombay Gin, and the Reanimation Libraries Word Processor Series, and Fizz. She is also editing Volume 3 of the Encyclopedia Project. Um, and this may sound like a commercial, but it's the last volume was a 400-page book of uh, amazing work from just a huge breadth of authors. And I don't know where anywhere else where you would get something like the Encyclopedia Project in the future, in the past. Um, it's full color, color plates, and for only $25. So <laughs> just think of that <laughs> if you uh, love kind of mixed media in your work. Um, so what else am I going to say here? Um, she is also the author of uh, a chapbook. Is that a chapter called? Sinis or Sinis? Sinis. Um, I really want to read that. Um, <laughs> but I did read um, Unexplained Presence, which is her first full-length book uh, collection of original hybrid essays. Um, they're just wonderful. And they mix a lot of different kinds of media. Like I said, a, a fusion of a lot of different kind of writing that maybe doesn't feel like it's existed before, but when you take it in, it has a beautiful place. Um, so I, I kind of found it as uh, an experimentation and possibility. Um, and she is currently writing a novel as a public curator. Um, please help me and welcome you to so much Anna Joy for inviting me to be a part of this series and to read with Robin which is uh, a real treat and first time 
So I'm really excited about that. Um, I've said we've never been together. Isn't that yeah, crazy? Yeah, we've been together all morning. So like every time they whisper, I'm like, what? It's <laughs> kind of like a, a triangle. Don't leave me out. What's happening? Um, I am working on a novel, but I decided to read from another piece um, that's kind of an evolving essay of sorts um, about my involvement. I'm sorry, this is driving me a little nuts. I don't know anything about technology, but I'm going to pretend. I think the volume is probably on whatever the. I can hold this over. Set it on the thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, sorry. I think I found it. It's not. Is there a volume? Change. It cannot be changed. Does anybody know about this thing? Yeah, it cannot be changed. Oh. They told me. Oh. Well done. Great. How's that? Perfect. You can hear me? Yeah. And it's doing something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got off a plane, like, all of a sudden. Okay, so um, this piece is called Tracking Dust, and it's kind of chronicling what I'm calling a stealth collaboration. So I wasn't actually invited to collaborate um, on a project. I was invited to participate in a project, but then I kind of am in a, I decided to kind of insert myself into this project and create a piece of writing um, about it um, and its aims and um, my presence and also a kind of a sense of my extended um, community absence from the project at the same time. So um, this is the beginnings of it. It started this summer and I'm still revising it. And so I'll just keep that in mind. Um, and hopefully it'll make sense. If it doesn't, I hope you'll ask questions. Tracking dust. There was a story to steal. There is, out there somewhere, mine to find, yours. Of the rambling woman, the female drifter, the seasonal sister seen here only in winter and over there every spring. Steal yourself, for now. Black women's travel stories are an imaginary cinema, adapted for the screen with each remembrance, with each reading of a slave narrative, a novel, or a poem, with each listen to an old recording. I make a film that doesn't yet exist, keep company, kept company by the few that do. The wild, raw, in the world depictions of indigent young black women in cities migrating for work, rural adventures, escapes or ejections from the domestic sphere and into new frames, films of black women on the move have yet to manifest from their staggering array of materials available. I marvel at this necessity still to steal stories, time, framing, space, cinema, to agitate against the single story of black women, the home, the children, the man, the injustice, scandal notwithstanding. This is a yearning for black women in travel that is not how Stella got her group back, but perhaps how Stella never came back, meaning not sex tourism, but transformation, a step off the highway, onto a byway, to a clearing that is the self, the fold of the self, not the fold itself, black girl in the wilderness style. Just turn it off. 
Will this work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the theft of a story occurred with this writing, begun this summer at the invitation of two guest curators of a seven-week writing and film series called My Atlas. My Atlas focused on the theme of women and travel, a subject close to the curator's hearts and experiences. I was paired with the film Morburn Collar. Writer Carolina Vaklavriak with I Know Where I'm Going. Activist Natasha Singh with Maria Full of Grace. Screenwriter Andrea Richards with Thelma and Louise. Writer and journalist Linnell George with Savage Eye. And writer Vanessa Veselka with Vagabond. Due to unforeseen circumstances, poet Dolores Dorantes, paired with the film Stromboli, had to cancel. We writers were each to present a text in loose or close relation to the film we were paired with and to ourselves. A very cool series, and I was excited to be a part of it, though a bit nervous to be the first to present. I hadn't seen Lynn Ramsey's film, Morven Collar, in many years but I immediately recalled that the film's eponymous protagonist, Morburn, finds herself on Christmas Day in her working-class Scottish hometown, left with two bodies, her boyfriend's a bloody suicide splayed on the living room floor near the tinsel tree, and his manuscript left on his computer with a note and instructions for sending it to publishers in New York. His other gifts to her include a rocking and touching mixtape which serves as the soundtrack for the film. But this isn't what I vividly remember. What I remember most is Morburn's face in front of her dead boyfriend's computer, the cursor blinking at the book's title, then down to the author's name. I remember that we barely register her boyfriend's name before she almost absently backspaces, erases it, then types in her own Morburn collar. She passes the book off as hers, sells it for a great deal of money, quits her job at the supermarket, and jets to Ibiza with her homegirl. She, not her boyfriend's presumed posthumous fame as a result of her labor after his death, is the author of the story now. It may be hot, but it's hers, and she's the star. Morvern steals a story and a new life, a new way of looking at everything. She grieves, but she keeps it moving her profile on a plane against the horizon of a beach on a village road is a country unto itself, a map to an unknown future. As a child, I would stare intently out the car window beyond the blurred concrete border of the expressway and out into the woods, deep past the sparse trees and into where it grew thick, dark, another land, untamed. Like any child, any girl, any black girl out for a drive with her family, out on the way home from a party, the company amusement park outing, the holiday cookout, I sat pressed close to the door, belted in on my side of a car, imagining my survival out there alone in the humid or the cold, vaguely aware of the silhouette on the other side of the seat, staring out the other way, little black cameo, all the light darting out of his eye and off to the side of the road at the window because it was his turn, or my turn, or your turn. We fought over the window, or you were the only child, or there were only two. Two siblings, two windows, one each, no others, or you were wild. That girl belted in, dreaming of slipping away when they left you in the small-time department store parking lot and running off to find your future. Some animal or instinct to parent 
guide the magic of being forever outside. Mobility is cinematic. Your first child's superpower, ambulatory, locomotive, visual, moving and going nowhere at once, at least at first, frame by frame, moving and being moved beyond a train car, a bedroom windowsill, the L7 of your small thumbs and forefinger, the melanin-stained aperture of your hollow fist. See yourself out there from in here, migrate, escape, looking for a story to snatch and implant yourself in, for it wasn't supposed to be yours, life's adventure, that silent staring out that precedes the sudden bolting of your legs. A child serious about running is hard to catch, and once gone, you cannot dare to be caught as you know you will be beaten and strapped back into the yoke of the bad girl who must be made to be good since you clearly were not born that way. Watch. By the window, the whirring stretches of concrete sidewalk peopled by mysterious, frightening, glamorous possibility, and the deep stands of trees remote and the shadows way away from the guardrail of the highway. It's out there, the life you will write, impose, burgle, sneak, and thieve your way into. How do eight-year-olds know that? Certain of us do. We who shock adults with declarations like, you don't own me, or I'm never getting married, or I don't want kids, or I'm going to travel the world, or I want to be a truck driver. Despite being one of eight children of married or single parents without passports or driver's license, automobiles or dreams they could still see from the flat they live in a mile from the hospital where they were born. Despite being belted in, yoked to someone else's idea of your place, your lot in life, bordered and barred away from the road that was for everybody else but you. And yet we push for parole from the earliest sentences, the terms set and framed, framing a limited multisyllabic sophistication, obedient, dutiful, responsible. This is every girl's story, doubled down for dark little you. It's not the one you want not the one I wanted, in the waning days of the 1970s when virality was all the rage and seemed only for boys. The wild child, Lucan, mental illness, disassociation, multiple personalities were the portals child women leapt through, civil, secretly developing latent telekinetic skills with which to avenge our abuses, carry, run away, recover, go ask Alice, dissolve, disappear through a berm of abject behavior, suspect ability, the, to the outer edges of somewhere in advance of nowhere, to be raised in the woods, if not by wolves, then by our own most ferocious imaginations. We, you, I, had that. We only needed to give them the slip, them parents, them morals, them whites, them laws, them boys, them all. Snatch the story out of their jaws, the forbidden one, saturated with the spit and envy, the fear that the story they covet and hold away, meeting out bits of fable and pulp, tongues tattooed with indelible truth, their wretched obedience transforms to cautionary tales. See what happens when you don't listen, when you disobey, when you go off into that dark wood without us and our instructions. Snatch the story and run. Slip the yoke of domesticity and criminality by this one holy theft, a story, your story, owned, told, survived beyond the criminal, into the animal. In my first drafts of this piece for my atlas, I had titled it Slip the Yoke, 
a reference to an African-American saying, slip the yoke, change the joke, which I always invert to change the joke, slip the yoke, meaning that with the right recontextualization or critique, one might use racially um, gender or sexually charged stereotypical material without implicating oneself, without perpetuating the very thing being turned inside out. But in considering the reality and fictive representations of black women's mobility, travel, the tracing of which more energetically ener activates this writing, once any and all yokes are slipped, I changed the title to Tracking Dust, an inversion of Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. Dust, tracking dust refers to dual notions of this text. Tracking the dust shapes left in the wake of black women's stories of moving through time, space, and place. And through empathic interrogation, tracking the roads not traveled by the curators of my atlas, the project. The possessive pronoun here tells it all. How do these roads manifest in their, the curators, individual psyches, or why didn't they? Were the spectral figures of black women on these roads, these footpaths, paths, these rivers and waterways, were they unrecognizable? And my function as a writer engaged with film in a program that featured three non-white writers, but only one film featuring a non-white lead, what was my role? It was coincidental but fitting uncanny to begin the series with Morburn Collar and this text of thieving. My stealth collaborations began too with my decision to attend the entire series of my atlas and to project the invisible cinema of black women onto the celluloid atlas the curators created. What if freedom is human? Is normality then and civilization inhumane? For you to eschew the child, the kitchen, if not the skirt or the man, is to be unnatural, recalcitrant, inverted. Step into this transformation. How the slave coffle became a dance. This story has its variations. Being out of step can be liberatory, can make the yoke slip a bit. In considering the dearth of cinematic tales of women of color on the road, I contemplate will, sense of purpose, leisure, and class. Before we move to work, always have. We have had our dream life of angel stories, our before sunrise and its two-part aftermath, apocalypse road tales, second act, late life, first loves, May-December romances in other countries. We have our girlhood, womanhood, in place, time and space, and so much more. The script potentials exist on my bookshelves by writers like Shea Youngblood, Gail Jones, Aisha Rahman, Octavia Butler, I, Patricia Spears Jones, Maurice Conde, Paula Marshall, Hentazaki Shange, Robin Costa Lewis. So many indigent young women began the adventures of their lives just before and during the great migration of black people from southern states to the north. The biographies of world-class artists from rural beginnings like Nina Simone, Leontine Price, and Jesse Norman tell just a sliver of what occurred and what failed miserably for dreaming, creative, or factory-bound black women. And the visionary parents who scraped together money to send their girl children on the path of their dreams. Imagine the times, the intense disruption of order, the shifting of roles, possibilities, and places. Isabel Wilkerson and her epic book of the Great Migration, The Warmth of Other Sons, cites this editorial from the Macon Telegraph, 
September 1916. Everybody seems to be asleep about what is going on right under our noses. That is, everybody but those farmers who have wakened up on mornings recently to find every Negro over 21 on his place gone to Cleveland, to Pittsburgh, to Chicago, to Indianapolis. And while our very solvency is being sucked out beneath us, we go about our affairs as usual. The profound power of owning one's own body, one's labor, one's movement, and acting on that sovereignty to ensure one's own solvency destabilized an entire region of the country. Each story in the warmth of other suns is a movie. Ray Bradbury's short story, Way Up in the Air, takes the great migration a step further. Rather than head to northern American cities, every black person in the country takes a rocket ship to Mars. Perhaps that seemed extreme then, and yet a film about a young black woman traveler in 2014 is no less so. The wilderness is quite thick, and it's apparently hard to see the forest for the trees, but it's an old desire to make a way through. In their eyes were watching God, Nanny, Janie's grandmother, tells her, You know, honey, us colored folks is branches without roots, and that makes things come round in queer ways, you in particular. I was born back doing slavery, so it wasn't for me to fulfill my dreams of what a woman ought to be and ought to do. That's one of the holdbacks of slavery, but nothing can stop you from wishing. You can't beat nobody down so low till you can rob them of their will. I didn't want to be used for a work ox and a brood sow, and I didn't want my daughter to be used that way neither. It sure wasn't my will for things to happen like they did. I even hated the way you was born. But all the same, I thank God I got another chance. I wanted to preach a great sermon about colored women sitting on high, but there wasn't no pulpit for me. Freedom found me with a baby daughter in my arms, so I said I'd take a broom and a cook pot and throw up a highway through the wilderness for her. She would expound what I felt. But somehow she got lost off of the highway, and next thing I know, here you was in the world. So whilst I was tending you of nights, I said I'd save the text for you. Nanny saved the text for Janie, the story she wanted for her own girl, t girl child, of a free girl and an open road, dreams of the possible and the impossible, but had to wait a generation to bestow it as her own girl child fell off the road of possibility and returned with a babe in arms. Nanny saved the text, the text being a dream of freedom on the move, cooking and cleaning to create not just a path, but a highway through the woods to some other life, a life for Janie, a life for you and for me. So as certain mothers and grandmothers have done, knowing that the text, the story, the dream of mobility wasn't for them, yet wasn't to be withheld. I love how through emancipation, Nanny's feminism is immediately expressed. The road opens and widens for what she thinks a woman ought to be and ought to do, which clearly isn't centered on the domestic sphere, or at least not the domestic sphere alone. In Usman Sembeni's film, Black Girl, from 1966, Giovanna decides to take a job as a nanny in the south of France. She walks along the streets of Dakar, excited by her future, walks atop an important monument wall, defiant, arms outstretched, above it all, her body across, marking the spot. Diwana imagines herself caring for the white family's children, then, with her free time, walking along the shops by the sea, buying a hat or a dress, sending money back to her family in Senegal. But this is not to be. 
She is only free to dream this, to act it out while still at home. Once in the Cote d'Azur, Diawana is disabused of the notion that she is free to wear her pretty dress, earrings, and heels while she mops the floor. This, of course, offends Madame's sense of scale and place. Giovanna is imprisoned in the apartment of her employers, forced to cook, clean, and endure the racism and sexual assault of her employer's guests. Her ensuing depression baffles the couple. Why on earth should she be unhappy or look ruefully, critically upon them? She should be grateful to be in their presence, in their house, in such a <coughs> lovely place. Saint-Bene critiques colonialism and the French New Wave in well under 90 minutes with devastating force. And yet, this film, while part of my atlas, was not part of the My Atlas project. <laughs> I, I both pondered the exclusion of the film Black Girl from the curatorial vision, as well as my inclusion in it. There is a mirror here, if I care or dare to look. Had Black Girl been included and I paired with it, I'd still have stolen a story, Simbenes. I yearn to give Giovanna a different ending, one in which she lives and is not sacrificed, one in which she is the teller of her own tale and not a symbol within someone else's and stays on the road to wherever, alive. It's hard to know concretely what my mother wanted for herself, truly wanted, or what my grandmother wanted, or her mother, but the cook pot and the broom, then the sewing machine and the key punch, the passport and the driver's license yielded successive freedoms for we child women. A schizophrenic one, no doubt. Don't wait for men, don't let nobody hit you, have your own money but have children, a nice home, a good man. I can't remember my mother ever telling me to see the world or that it belonged to me, but that's what I wanted and wanted to be true. Enraged by a philandering husband, my great-grandmother left Barbados with her two small daughters. Once my mother married too young and had me, my grandmother, perhaps in a you-fell-off-the-highway vindictiveness, returned to Barbados, left my mother behind, age 19, bathed in arms, and embarked on her own second act. Her sister, my grandmother's sister, traveled to an ashram in Pondicherry every year. My mother only left the country once, to Barbados, on a family trip. She didn't ever express a need to see the world, declined every invitation I made to travel with her anywhere she wanted. And yet, on the last trip I took before she died, she said, Brazil? You get to go to all the good places. It never occurred to me until now, thinking through black women in travel, that the idea of traveling just to go, and black, a black woman traveling for herself, without husband, family, job, or church, or remote possibilities to the point of being impossible. Zora Neale Hurston, writer, anthropologist, free spirit on the move, inhabiting the blues, understood this need for self-determination by movement implicitly. She traveled the world, and while she married more than once, the road and writing were central to her life. Negro spirituals and field haulers are familiar vehicles for travel. Songs frequently depict travel to freedom, to escape drudgery and bondage by chariot, by train, by traveling shoes, wingtips to fly to heaven on, or to just steal away. Hurston was immersed, raised in the idiom of travel in the context of generations of black people only relatively recently having the freedom of movement. While not a musician herself, 
As a writer and researcher, Hurston was very much a blues woman traveler, snatching for herself a life not common to someone of her race and gender, like Harriet Tubman, celebrated gun-toting and most successful conductor of the Underground Railroad, and Harriet Jacobs' amazing chronicle of her escape to freedom and incidents of the life of a slave girl. Their names, these Harriets, contain movement. Harriet, worry it, shake up the world, make it turn towards you, trouble the water. In Blues Legacies in Black Feminism, Angela Davis says, the traveling blues man is a familiar image, but the traveling blues woman is not so familiar. Although travel was generally a distinctly male prerogative, there were some women who, because their lives were not primarily defined by their domestic duties, were as mobile as men. These women were among the first black performers in the embryonic black entertainment industry. They were members of minstrel troops, and they performed for circuses and medicine shows. For Gertrude Ma Rainey and other black women who toured as entertainers from the turn of the century on, the interminable journeys around which they constructed their lives fundamentally challenged the normal social expectations surrounding female experience. These women disengaged themselves from the usual confines of domesticity. As Rainey's career as a traveling entertainer brought a message confirming the end of slavery, like vast numbers of men, she was exercising the freedom to travel. Her music also invited her female audience to glimpse for themselves the possibility of equaling their men in this new freedom of movement. Rainey's music presented women who did not have to acquiesce to men who set out on the road, leaving their female partners behind. The female characters in her songs also left home, and they often left their male partners behind. They were female subjects who were free of the new post-slavery fetters of domestic responsibilities and domestic service outside the home. That was all a very long quote. Davis's close reading of Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billy Holiday's blues lyrics and lives provides both soundtrack and oral history for black women travelers and the dream of travel, as well as how the blues was a vehicle for expressing sexual liberation in a way that Negro spirituals could and would not accommodate. For the spur to move, to travel, is as much about freedom of the body and sexuality, sensuality, as it is about mobility to work and put a root down. Suge Avery, in both the book and the film The Color Purple, is the bringer of feminism, the blues, and sexuality to Celie's world, body, and mind. That Suge, once she puts her suitcase down, loves and makes love to Celie, is radical and emancipatory. In Patricia Rosima's When Night Is Falling, Petra Soft, I'm sorry, When Night Is Falling, the circus comes to a small Canadian town and its aerialist, brown-skinned, and mysterious Petra Soft brings adventure, sex, and love to a churchy married professor, Camille Baker. Both Celie and Camille, touched by the love of a traveling black woman, find in themselves the desire and the power to run away, hit the road, take a stand, and change their lives. I'm fascinated by the spur for travel, sexuality, queerness, lesbianism, to move somewhere beyond yourself, to be yourself. How to have, how somehow in their traveling and in putting roots down, create places for others to go and stay. 
Adventure without goal, no career save that of the will. Desperation without death, making a way to have shelter, to eat, to move. Nomads are not rootless, but place-based, time-sensitive, conscientious, with resources and feeling. There are times of return and of leaving. Why wait in one place for the return of a beneficial season when one could be had elsewhere and thrive and enjoy? Nomads are meantime people, a constant life and of activity. Home is here and elsewhere at once. I watched westerns of all kinds with my dad. I wanted to be the rambler, the silent stranger, lean and strong, come to town, an edge of danger to me, just enough to bring close to me the prettiest woman or man threatened or thrilled by what I aroused in them. I take a job washing dishes at the back of a saloon in exchange for a bed and some food. Someone would fall in love with me and I'd let him down easy. I'd meet my match in love, then drink away my wounded pride. Maybe I'd be nearly killed. One day, at the apex of my Western melodrama, under the gaze of teary, narrowed, and wistful eyes from every table, corner, and porch in town, I'd churn in my apron, groom my horse, or shine my shoes, and say my goodbyes to a whistled, lonesome tune. The West, a playground and frontier, homestead an illusion of deracination, the power to steal a story, like land, alter it to fit like a vest, a, the cameo brooch, the locket, coiled with hair, snatch it and keep it, reanimate it to suit the color of your dreams. The Homestead Act excluded you and me, yet 16-year-old girls drove wagon trains to Kansas and further on, had the responsibility of the road to seek a path for others like themselves to follow and set up shop. From fugitive to now, we chart our geography, running, drifting, wandering, hiding, losing and masquerading. Vanessa Veselka, in her talk for my atlas, Freedom and Death, in relation to Agnes Varda's film, Vagabond, said that for her years, 25 years of hitchhiking from a teenager, it was not the great adventure, but the great desperation. She asks, why is death inevitable for the female traveler? Linnell George, in her My Atlas talk about Los Angeles, in conjunction with the incredible film, Savage Eye, said her walking in Los Angeles and taking pictures made her suspect, even as she recorded a Los Angeles never part of its cinematic public image. No skyscrapers glistening, no beaches, no palm trees, but the constant refrain, what are you doing here? Why are you on this street? The constant reminder that her black female body was suspect. If free to go, where and how? dare without a thought of the word safe. What if place, what if space belongs to me, confers belonging, claims me, you, or us? Child faces pressed to glass panes imagine themselves set to flowing without constriction. How to move without consideration of the construction of space, the possibility of imagining the body in a landscape not made to kill the black body and its dreams. To not need permission, not to not heed fear, to not heed fear as an obstacle. June Jordan, who was an architect in addition to being a poet and activist, planned a sky rise for Harlem in collaboration with Buckminster Fuller, who in Esquire magazine was given full credit for the project. 
In her plan, she considered the psychology of movement and the psychic life of architecture, endeavoring to create a Harlem that was a healer and an enabler of true mobility and generative life. In a letter to Fuller, she asks, I wonder if our plan could provide for access to shoreline and thus natural fluency that would devolve from dwelling places alternating with circles of outdoor safety along the water's edge. This would mean domestication of the littoral, but not the occlusion of the autonomous energies of the river. Would you think it worthwhile to connect interior green space with peripheral rivers? And she continues, given our goal of a Pacific life-expanding design for a human community, we might revise street patterning so that the present patterns of confrontation by parallel lines would never be repeated. The existing monotony limits pleasures of perspectives. Rigidly flat land is ruled by rectilinear form. The crisscrossing patterns too often become a psychological crucifixion, an emergence from an alleyway into a danger zone vulnerable to enemies approaching in at least two directions that converge at the target who is the pedestrian poised on a corner. Jordan appeals for as many curvilinear features of street patterning as possible. For the woman traveler, what might this mean? The rural feel following the flows of rivers through cities and allowing for curves, water, against psychological crucifixion, how might that facilitate a true sense of freedom of movement, as well as our definition of safety in cities? And where are the pictures of June Jordan in Rome, where she traveled to receive the Rome Prize for her architecture and had a residency? That, too, is a movie waiting to be made. I'm here traveling Jordan's river ideas because I remember being a child staring out of car windows and into the woods, often off the road, meandered the waterways, spread the marshlands and creeks, whole bodies of water emerging away from under the asphalt. This is spiritual and personal, the traveler, woman, seeker. What rhythms does, woman, does the woman traveler seek in life? What current? Jordan's plan for Harlem gets at the force of a living, of living more naturally that connects with, to the possibility of flow for child women of the future. Her plan was never finalized, was finalized but never realized in 1964. And Harlem, well, the flow into its streets is very different now. Black women are returning or moving for the first time back to the South in droves. As with Jordan, our presence, mine, Natasha Sings, and Linnell George's, as non-white respondents during the My Atlas film series, was to change the architecture already in place. Our presence was a testament to the invisible cinema, the excluded films of the Caribbean, South Asia, and Africa, and yet our womanhood and mobility covered the elision, fleshed it out with our bodies, our intellect, and generosity. We filled the gap with ourselves and our talk. We fit we spoke well, we connected on a human level, we were scrim and proxy, projecting ourselves onto ourselves for the audience, and it was wrong, and it was right. And in the conundrum of voice and visibility, writing against type and amplification took place, black and brown women's bodies migrating, running, seeking, writ large, while absent. Is the rambler, the wanderer, always an outsider, an outlaw? 
who makes town folks suspicious, curious, full of desire and jealousy? We need the sentinels and watchers, the habit keepers and face clockers so that we may know the interloper, the stranger, the newcomer, the oddity, the danger. Mother sister sitting in the window behind a curtain, this guise of loving surveillance. The rambler then is of a past, of a smaller, newer world. These states where arrival is noticed. Now, one can blend. The drifter isn't easily detected, as she isn't watched for. Not so for the rambling black woman, out of nowhere it seems, walking down your street, perhaps admiring your choice of houseplant, the placement of a succulent. She stands there, loosely, head floating on her neck, taking it all in, and some worry, and watch, and wait, think of calling the police, expectant of an act of violence commensurate with the feeling they have about her mere presence, her gaze upon their life, this discrepant engagement. Harriet Mullen has talked about walking in Los Angeles in this way while writing the tankas that comprise her latest book of poems, how she was looked at askance when she stopped in front of a house, a garden she admired during one of her treks. We strive to make the world, the road, wide. Thank you. to um, come back up here and introduce Robin Cost-Lewis. Uh, I was first introduced to one of her poems that in Anna Joy's workshop that she brought in, um, and it was called Virga. Uh, it was, it's not right to call such a poem beautiful, but it taunts me to this day. Its language was surprising, um, its subject matter multifaceted, <laughs> changing. Um, it is. It speaks the unspeakable. It makes the unspeakable speakable. And that is the gift I think writing can have. Um, and that was my first introduction into her work. Um, it is online, so I encourage you to look it up. Um, but it really is emblematic of the way Robin uses description and how to use both language to create something out of something unspeakable or trauma or something that has been overlooked. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about where her work has been published. Um, it's a long list. So I'll start with the Massachusetts Review, the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review, Callaloo, among others. And she is mythologized in Black Silk and also the Encyclopedia Project, K through F through K. Um, she is a Cave Canem Fellow and was a finalist for the Rita Dove Prize. She graduated from some of my favorite details, Harvard um, School of Harvard Divinity School, where she received her master's in theological studies and a degree in scan Sanskrit and comparative religious literature. Um, she has taught at many schools, but what I wanted to say. Um, you know, to the Open School for the Arts, UC Berkeley. Um, she's currently a fellow at USC. But what I wanted to say about um, the degree in uh, <coughs> Sanskrit, I thought this kind of a wonderful comparison that I noticed an attention to language, especially in her essay that's available online, um, 
epic and jazz. I recommend that all of you uh, read it. It is truly tremendous um, from where it, from quotes that are pulled into the idea as blues as an epic, as a kind of odyssey and adventure in something that is just haunting and beautiful. Um, so I wanted to bring that up and that her book is forthcoming, A Voyage of the Sable Venus, um, which I can't wait to read. So, thank you. things I want to say just before I start is that um, I love Andrew Springer a great deal and I love Tisa Bryant a great deal. I met them both, not at the same time, but for those different ways where you meet someone that you know you should be friends with for the rest of your life. I met them both that way. Tisa actually became my editor um, before I knew her as a writer. And so my gratitude to you, my gratitude to you for supporting my work is vast and endless. As I hope you surely both know, thank you all for coming. I uh, had a whole plan to read all of these other poems, but after listening to Tisa, I decided to change the script. I promise I won't go over. Can you guys hear me in the back? So anyway, did you hear what I said? I was going to read these other poems, but now that Tisa brought up this um, conversation about black women in travel, women of color and travel, I decided to read um, some other poems. My family uh, migrated to Los Angeles from New Orleans as part of the Great Migration. Three sisters, my grandmother, my great aunt. Um, and somehow they managed to bring about, I don't know, 20 people by sewing in sweatshops in LA. And um, now there are about 300 of us in LA. We have a huge, there's a huge diaspora of Louisiana people all over the world. And um, I don't know, Tisa, what you just did was pretty profound about black women mobility. I mean, think about it. There's not one buddy movie of black women. Not one. Not one buddy story of black women. So I decided to change everything I was going to read, and maybe I can come back in the fall when my book comes out and read the main parts of it, and instead I'm going to read some poems that have to do with women traveling and moving in motion, or women being invisible, and women moving invisibly by standing still. Um, yeah, so these are all for you, Tisa. That was beautiful. This is Felicite. Of all 300 species of hummingbirds, only one, the ruby-throated, crossed the Mississippi. Somehow this matters to me. They can hover in midair. They can fly backwards. They fly 500 miles straight through across the Gulf of Mexico without ever landing. Their mouths are hollow, burnished needles bright, sharp flutes. They sip the nectar of cactus flowers. When Louisiana meant all the land from the Pacific to the Mississippi, a grandmother of mine once owned one of the largest plantations in all the territory. When Louisiana meant Spain, she'd been a slave. When Spain bought itself back, she is listed as a sole owner of a vast plantation 
a plantation so large that property lines now form the boundaries of an entire county. Tonight, after 25 years, I realize I've spent my entire life avoiding any situation that might require me to say these words aloud. From that moment, I discovered her rotting inside a molding courthouse, her signature next to the plantation's inventory. I began to babble any words I could think of in four different languages, placing them in the most chaotic order possible, in order not to say these words the black side of my family owned slaves. Or her signature, Marie Pani, femme de free woman of color. Her lover was a famous judge from Sardinia. He took great pleasure in watching black women hanged inside the square to musical accompaniment. I read this about him once, then tried to see her brown, sleeping next to him, fucking him on her plantation on top of a pineapple bed, kissing behind his ears, sharing an alligator pair, strolling through her cane. Maybe at some point every hour a part of me has wondered about her silently, though I did not think so until just now. Maybe she is the answer to the sensation I've had for years, that of another body hovering inside me, waiting for a dress. What can history possibly say? Sometimes I feel a pride I cannot defend or explain. Sometimes I smile. Into the barbed nectar of the story I've stared my whole life. Whenever someone tried to kiss me, I tucked her name under my tongue. If someone tried too long to hold me, I hid her between my legs. If they wanted to touch me there, I'd pull out her name and place the white bone under my pillow, hoping she would return, take it away, leave me a glistening quarter. To her son, Teodulam, Narikipani gave her favorite slave, a girl named Felicite. They were married. One of their children, Eloise, was my grandmother's great-great-grandmother. There's a picture I found of Eloise once, corseted in the studio, standing next to a waist-length pillar which held a verdant fern. But mostly, I have wondered, how does one name a slave happiness? Happiness had a twin sister, Francoise. I don't know what happened to her. Perhaps she is still out there, like us, her throat glistening a silent red. Or perhaps she is the only one who can still cross the river, the only one still flying backwards over the gulf without landing. Um, do you, any of you know the poem by Gwendolyn Brooks called The Kitchenette Building? Okay. No? Okay, good, that's great. I, any chance to bring Gwendolyn Brooks into the room, I welcome <laughs> completely. I'm going to read a poem that I did of Gwendolyn Brooks's. It's a redux called The Mothers. But uh, first, I thought I would bring Gwendolyn Brooks here, who spoke about a lot of the issues and wrote a lot about the issues that Tisa was talking about. This is Gwendolyn Brooks's Kitchenette Building. It's from her first book, um, uh, Bronzeville Street in Bronzeville, for which she won the Pulitzer prize, and she was the first black woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, and um, Auden, of course, uh, when she won, said, who left the coon in? 
So, kitchenette building, she's a genius of a poet, Gwendolyn Brooks. We are the things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could dream send up, I'm sorry, but could a dream send up through onion fumes, it's white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage, write me in the hall, flutter or sing an aria down these rooms. Even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute, since number five is out of the bathroom now. We think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. Do you guys know what a kitchenette is? A kitchenette building? Yes, the everybody shared, has an apartment, but no one has a bathroom, and the bathroom's down the hall. Okay, so with regard to invisible migrations and people traveling invisibly while standing still, I got interested in the ways that poor people will especially move without moving. Uh, so I wrote a redux of this poem of Gwendolyn Brooks's as a homage to Gwendolyn Brooks, but also as a way of, the, of pushing it a little bit um, about what the people were doing in that building. And this is called The Mothers, For and After Gwendolyn Brooks. We meet sometimes between the dry hours, between clefts and the involuntary plan, refusing to think of rent or food, how civic the slick to satisfy from man and democratic. A lucky strike each, we sponge each other off while what's grayed in and gray sleeps ashamed down the drain. No need to articulate great restraint. No need to see each other's mouth lick the obvious, giddy. Burnt fingers garnished with fumes of onions and garlic. I slip back into my shift, then watch her hands, wordless, reattach her stockings, to the martyred rubber moons wavering at her garter. When I was 19, I um, went around the world by myself for the first time after saving up a lot of money selling bras in the lingerie department in the <laughs> store. Um, and uh, I also left home at 17 and moved to New York. And it would begin an incredible and um, insatiable passion for travel and for seeing the world. Um, and I ended up living in India and teaching in India a great deal. So um, this is a poem that's about traveling to India, but also about traveling to oneself. On the road to Sri Bhuvaneshwari, get comfortable as a long poem. <laughs> on the road, on the road to Sri Bhuvaneshwari. Not much larger than a Volkswagen smiling on the dashboard, gloomy. Marigold so mild we can chew. What we call mountain, they say foothill. A whole vibrant green valley of terraced balconies, rectangular rice farms carved into every facade for seven centuries. Now and then, a clay road washed out by rain. We wait. Barefoot men in Madras go these bodies large only as necessity, hoist twice that in boulders back up the mountain, back to the place where the road had been. Monsoon, Uttar Pradesh, 28 days of rain. At dinner, someone says, during the 19th century, all this water caused the British to go mad. They constantly committed suicide. Later, someone else points out their Victorian cemetery. I smile a little. 
That morning, seven lingers the size of six-year-olds, gray and brown, white and beige, tall tails curling, jumped up and down, shoved and jive on top of my cold tin roof. Somehow, I am still alive. I know it is wrong to think of a decade as lost. The more I recover, the more I go blind. Squat, naked, beside a steaming bucket, hold a small cloth. In Trinidad, one says cloth. The H is quiet, a wafer of breath, just like here. There's no telling what languishes inside the body. Not missed, but a whole cloud passes into one window, then two hours later, out the other. My American college students try out their kindergarten Hindi, hapital, hapital. Lips finger the sign script, and the United States break open their mouths into sad smiles when they realize it's not Hindi, but English, written in Devanagari, hospital. For the whole day, we drive along miles I'm sorry, for the whole day we drive along miles of wet, slithering clay to find a temple at the top of a mountain where Shiva is said to have once dropped a piece of Parvati. Every mountaintop made holy by the following charred body part of a goddess. An elbow fell here, here fell her toe, an ankle black and burnt, her knee. The road is wet and dark and red and keeps spinning. I sit behind the driver, admiring his cinnamon, his cinnamon fingers, his coiffed white beard, his pink pale turban wrapped so handsomely. Why did it take all that? I mean, why did she have to jump into the celestial fire to prove her purity? She was cool, poised in this blue, shimmering galaxy, I know, but when it came to his old lady man, he fucked up. <laughs> why couldn't he just believe her? I joke with the driver, we laugh. Guru Mook on the dashboard smiles back at me. But then I think, perhaps embodiment is so bewildering, even God grows wrecked with doubt. For a certain amount of rupees, the temples hired a man to announce to tourists. During the medieval period, virgins were sacrificed here. His bright face mirrors our orientalist hands. You're lying, I say, save it for somebody pale. He smiles, passes me a beady. I'm bleeding but lie so I can go inside and see that burnt, charred piece of the goddess that fell off right here. We climb up another 108 stairs. At the top, I try not to listen to anyone. An entire Himalayan valley chiseled, every mountain, peak to base, a living, verdant staircase for the goddess to walk down. Sri Bhuvaneshwari. Two. At night, our caravan winds back over gravel and clay. Tin headlamps broke the mountain walls of the green black valley. The road is only as wide as one small car. Hours of dog elbows switch backs, half roads. Slowly, after a turn, the driver takes his foot off the gas, downshifts, coasts. Black, warm, breath, snorting. Our car rubs against one chewing grass off the face of a cliff. Then another, taller than our car. Then hundreds block the road. Thick cylindrical horns scrape the driver's window. Eyes so white, black pupils gleam, peering into our cab, grunting and drooling onto the window. Now the whole car surrounded, warm black bodies covered in fur. Near their dusty hooves, children sit on the ground, nested in laps, quiet and smiling. Everyone embroidered with color, silver, metallic, 
ochres, coals, golds, reds, bolds, blacks, all of it, and a green so green, I realize it's a hue I've never seen. A whole nomadic clan traveling with hundreds of water buffalo, at least 60 human beings. There are so many buffalo, our cars cannot move, and they can't move the herd because a few feet ahead, a shoe buffalo is giving birth. We get out and wait. Out of habit, the students pull out their American sympathy, but then the driver says, all the women sitting there on the ground, dusty, with children in their laps, dangling their ankles over the mountain, adorned, all, each one, were enough gold, own enough buffalo, to buy your whole house in America cash. The night hits. Life is giving birth in the middle of a warm, dark world. Everyone in our party waits, smiling and gesturing, and the whole clan surrounded by snoring black bodies taller than our chins. We squat beside their lanterns, stand inside their headlight. The driver who grew up in this valley speaks two dialects, four national languages, plus English, cannot understand a single word anyone says. Solid gold bangles, thick as bagels, diamonds so large and what they look like large cubes of clear glass. The women stare through their bright syllables. Then one lifts her hand, points at one of us, says something, and they all laugh. Three. The calf is born dead, a folded and wet black nothing. It falls out of its mother still onto the ground. We watch it in the headlamps. Empty first sack, a broken umbrella made of blood and bone. The mother tries to run. Several men hold her, throw broad coils of ropes around her hooves. Two men, barefoot and dotis, grab her on each side by her horns and wait. They wait through her heaving. They sing to her. They coo. Men who are midwives. Through four translations, they say, it is her first time. She must turn around and see what happened to her, or she will go mad. We wait with the whole tribe, wait with the whole night, wait for her to stop bucking. Her hip bones are as tall as my eyes. Her neck is a massive drum. They do not force her, but they will not let her run. She is pinned to the mountain. Her tail points down towards her dead newborn. There are four hands on her wide horns, four more hold the ropes that surround her haunches. Finally, after a half an hour of bucking and grunting, she drops her eyes and gives. She lowers her face into it, into the black dead slip thing folded on the ground and sniffs, nudges the body, snorts, then, let, then they let her go. She runs off back into the snoring herd, disappears. Four. One day, ten years later, one fine, odd day, suddenly I will remember all of this. That night, that dark, narrow world will come back like a small, sleepy child and sit gently down inside my lap and look up into me. Coal and camphor around all the baby's eyes to keep evil away. That exquisite smell of men and sweat and dust. The unanticipated calm of standing within an enormous herd of sleeping water buffalo listening. To spend your entire life out of doors walking the world with your whole family and neighborhood. To stay together, to leave together. What a blessing, I think, and then quickly my newborn is asleep in a red wagon that says radio flyer. I have packed a large suitcase in one box. The world wants to know what I am made of, 
and I am trying to give her an answer. I place our things by the door and wait. Standing, eyes closed, looking. I want to remember the carved angels flying over the tall bay windows, the front doors 12 perfect squares of beveled glass, the cloud-high ceilings, the baby stuffed monkey, the tribal rugs, and the photograph of our tent in the desert that one bright morning on the floor of a canyon in Jordan. All of it in boxes now. The lights are on, the house is empty, night comes. I smell the giant magnolia blossoms opening. Once, I thought I was a person with a body, the body of something peering out, enchanted and tossed. The baby waits, he is two months old. I give him a piece of my body. He fingers my necklace strung with green glass beads. I tie him onto my back and think about the bright dahlias nursed from seeds, staging on the gentle riot now next to the rusty Victorian daybed where he was conceived beneath the happy banana tree out on the back balcony. My father's gold earrings are welded into my ears. All of my mother's diamonds are wrapped in the tissue and placed inside my pocket. And then, as if it is the most natural thing to do, I walk toward the stairwell and give the world my answer. All the way down the staircase, my hand palms the mahogany rail, and I think, once this beam of wood stood high, inside a great dark forest. Five. Thick coat, black fur, two russet horns twisted to stone. One night I was stuck on a narrow road panting. I was pregnant, I was dead, I was a fetus, I was just born. Most days I don't know what I am. I am a photograph of a saint smiling. For years, my whole body ran away from me. When I flew, charred through the air, my ankles and toes fell off onto the peaks of impassable mountains. I have to go back to that wet black thing dead in the road. I have to turn around. I must put my face in it. It is my first time. I would not have it any other way. I am a valley of repeating verdant balconies. And then I'm going to read two short ones. Um, this one's for you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm going to read the poem that she was talking about called Verga. It's about when you do, um, get to travel and don't get to travel. Sorry. Um, verga, for those of you who don't know, in Italian, it, it means many things in many languages, but in Italian it has this very curious, <laughs> distinct quality of meaning, both virgin and stick. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start with the epigraph um, of uh, recordings that Fazal, Fazal Sheikh took from the Abshi, um, from the Dagahili Somali refugee camp. Um, it's from his book, A Camel in the Sun. And he was interviewing Abshiro Adin Muhammad in Kenya in 2000. And this is what she had to say. Women don't want the men to go into the bush because the women will only be raped, but the men will be killed. I have seen a woman who was caught in the bush by several men. They tied her to lay, I'm sorry, they tied her legs to two trees while she was standing. 
They raped her many times, and before leaving her, they put stones in her vagina. This is the Bay Area. Before leaving her, they put stones in her vagina. The men will only be raped, but the stones will be killed. The bush caught many men to go into the stones. The stones will be killed by several trees before leaving. The bush tied the men to the trees in their vaginas. Before bush go to trees, they kill many stones. Many men will be caught by the trees in the bush. Several trees will be raped by the bush and then killed. Only the caught men will be stoned and bushed by the trees. Several men were caught by the trees before leaving. The men will be killed, but the stones will only be treed. The stones put many trees into the men's killed vaginas. By the bush, the trees were raped only several times. Before leaving, the vaginas were seen standing in the stones. And the last poem is a poem called Plantation. So I'm just going to read it. Plantation. And then one morning we woke up embracing on the bare floor of a large cage. To keep you happy, I decorated the bars. Because you had never been hungry, I knew I could tell you the black side of my family owned slaves. I realize this is the one reason why I love you, because I told you this and you still wanted to kiss me. We laughed when I said plantation, fell into our chairs when I said cane. They were fingers on the floor and the split bodies of women who'd been torn apart by horses during the Inquisition. You'd said, well, I'll be back to Every now and then, you'd change from a prancing black buck into a small, high yellow girl, pigtailed, patent leather, eye-spinning gossamer, begging for egg salad and banana pudding. Or just as quickly, you'd become the girl's mother, pulling yourself away from yourself. Because my whole head was covered with a heaving beehive, you thought I didn't notice. I noticed. I cried, honey. And then you were 14, and you had grown a glorious still cock under your skirt. To brag, you rubbed yourself against me. Then your tongue was inside my mouth, and I wanted to say, please ask me first. But it was your tongue, so who cared suddenly about your poor manners? We had books, and a waterfall was falling in the corner. I didn't tell you I couldn't remember what that thing was you said to me once, that tender thing you said I should never forget. The moment you said it, I forgot it. I wondered if you thought we were lost. We weren't lost. We were lost. And meanwhile, all I could think about were the innumerable ways I would have loved for eating you, how being devoured can make one cry. And I hoped you liked the fresh, pleasant taste of juiced cane. You pulled my pubic bone toward you. I didn't say it's still broken. I didn't tell you there's still this crack. It was sore, but I stayed silent because you were smiling. You said, the bars look pretty, baby. Then rubbed your hind legs up against me. Thank you.
Any questions? Should we go I'd love that if you would. If you will. Thanks, you guys. You're an amazing audience. Thank you for listening so attentively. comment you both write so rhythmically um i don't know if you write rhythmically but when i hear your work when i read your work there's such attention to rhythm i'm wondering as a writer how conscious you are of when you do it do you edit with that um what's your attention to rhythm like as you're blending fiction as poetry and criticism together <laughs> um so you know Lyric comes from music, and um, I'm pretty anal about meter and song and music and sounds. I try to hide it mostly. I read a sonnet tonight. You would always be able to know that if you saw it or if you're anal about music too, you could hear it. Um, uh, Claudia Lincoln, who uh, is an incredible writer, said once, that sometimes to clear things out of her work, to get the gunk out, she will drop things. I mean, I love the way she talks about it. It's so hard to write a, a proper sonnet. She'll, she'll just drop it into a sonnet to get the thing out of it. I'll just drop it a sonnet to clear out the gunk, and then she'll pull it back out and put it into another form. Um, but, you know, I, I really appreciate you bringing up my training in, in Sanskrit and Sanskrit theology and Sanskrit poetics because I'm always thinking about meter. It's always in my ear, and um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I also like to break the meter as well and play with that. Um, I go both ways, you know, like I can be really formal and get really crazy, and then I have other pieces that are intentionally not at all trying to be song, but trying to even question the desire for music. You know? So, but yeah, I mean, are we, I think, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm very conscious. I will change a word simply because the meter's not yeah, I, I don't have um, the training that Robin has. Um, but yeah, um, I spent a lot of, and I continue to spend almost an inordinate amount of time around poets. <laughs> uh, not as many fiction writers are my like friends and part of my community is mostly poets. Um, and as a writer, I started writing poetry, I think quite poorly, um, but uh, I do think that, that it's important to me for my sentences to have some kind of rhythm. I pay a lot of attention to it. It's a lot more intuitive. Um, I tried to teach myself about meter and it just boggled me. Like it just all sounded nuts. I was just like, that, that, that. I, I couldn't figure it out. Um, but there's something, it, it goes with the work. Um, 
the rhythm. Like it's 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 very much uh, contingent on kind of content and mood. Um, so so that is kind of a driver for me, um, and it's probably true for most people. And I also write longhand. So there's something else about rhythm. It, it to me, it's, it's writing is a very embodied experience. I don't compose on a keyboard. I I can't. Like I can write a letter of recommendation, you know, an email, those kinds of things, like very perfunctory business stuff, I can type. Um, and I touch type. But when I'm composing first draft, it has to be longhand. Um, and then I transcribe um, from, from that. Um, and I think that's how I hear through this whole motion. Like it's, yeah, I, and I need that kind of fluidity. And I think sometimes if I can't even write a word properly, it's not the right word. Um, so, but some of that editing happens when I'm actually typing. But yeah, it's it's there for sure. I was just saying one more thing. The other thing, I, I I try to just trust whatever it is that they want to do, and I feel like it will tell me what it wants. And the hardest part is to get out of the way of its mm -hmm. of the piece's desire for itself. And I'm constantly, I'm such an egomaniac, I'm constantly, it would be really cool if you did this right here, and it'd be like, actually, just <laughs> be quiet, yeah. just get out of the way and be quiet. And I find that the music that you're hearing, it's, it's often, it's, that, it's the music that wants to come through, mm -hmm. um, more than anything. And I'm like, you know, I can't do that, you can't do that. So I feel like the quieter I get, and the more out of the way I get, then hopefully, work it's strong. I mean English is a very beautiful language to write and it's a really boring language a lot of ways to just naturally I mean it's just not it's not as beautiful as so many languages in the world. But for writing I find it really meets my needs. Um, lyrical needs. Like you can do a lot. I mean I know the contaminator so really it's just right there. You're, you're just always, you know, it's like your heartbeat, it's always there, it's always there. So whether whether we meet or not, you know, we're constantly singing. So it's there. And singing, I think that's important too. Um, uh, maybe for those of you who are prose writers, you don't you maybe you don't have this this habit. Um, for poets, um, it's you have to hear it aloud. But I do feel that way with with prose. Um, like I kind of know even reading that which is in progress, and I was trying not to edit. Uh, it doesn't. Um, I don't know anything until I hear it. Um, you know, so reading aloud is definitely um, a part of the writing and editing process. So I'm definitely in the habit of reading out loud to myself. Um, you know, before <laughs> try not to test it publicly. That happens too. But <laughs> it's just like, ah, that sounds terrible. Um, but it's, I think giving something your voice is. I mean, sometimes we're operating on all of these, like two or various rhythms at once, like this, this kind of idealized, imagined the voice in your head that might get into the writing, um, but then what's able to come out of your mouth might tell you something else altogether. I mean, I think that's true for me, so. <laughs> I have a 
six-year-old and I'm a single mom and I take care of my mother who also has Alzheimer's. So, um, and you're getting a PhD. And I'm getting a PhD and my book is coming out. So I, you know, <laughs> I don't even try anymore. I don't. But I will say that I did not want to have a child forever because everyone said, if you have a child, you'll never write a book. Your work will never come out. Right? Once I had a kid, when I tell you I put my shit in seventh gear and put the pedal to the metal and didn't stop writing, I wrote three books in two years while I was a single mom living alone in New York City with my child. So would I do that again? Hell no. I almost went blind because I was so exhausted, but I couldn't stop working. It was like something clicked on in me that said, no matter what, this cannot stop. Um, but what I will tell you is that it has made me incredibly zorro about my time. You know, it's like, don't be late. If you and me are meeting for coffee and you're 15 minutes late, I'm walking. Yeah. Or, like, whatever. Like, I just can't waste time. I can't. I mean, literally, it's because it's like it's about whether I eat or have coffee with you when you're late. Like, I can't. I can't. But, so... I'm trying to figure out now that I have a little bit of, I mean, this is where I really think, this is where I am now, honestly. Writing makes me want to vomit right now. (laughs) But it's only because I wrote so intensely for a few years, and I did three books, and they're all very intense books. Emotionally intense, psychologically intense, the research was intense, it was historically intense, I mean, it was just intense. And so, like, I can't stand, like Kisa said, most of her friends are poets. None of my friends, my dear friends, are poets. I don't hang out with poets. I don't want to hear about poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Most of my dear friends are filmmakers. Or some weird-ass hybrid show. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, I've been thinking a lot about how not working is a kind of working. And and that I was raised incredibly... um, beautiful but unrealistic work ethic, so I never take time off, not ever, not ever, not ever. I don't know how to go on vacation or any of that. And so right now my work, I know this sounds so like Oprah, but right now my work (laughs) is really learning how not to write, how just to stop. You hear about writers, like I hear, I read about writers, I have lots of writer friends who've written 20,000 books. They were talking about like that silence after a book. We walked around for two years thinking. I was like, who the hell? I don't think silence. So I'm trying to learn about the silence after a book and just kind of let it settle in as a way to um, to work. And it is, it is work for me. It's, it's a beautiful place, actually. Um, but I think the deeper question you're asking is how you're going to get your work done. I have, like, I'm actually not a student here. Uh-huh. I have, like, I was about 41 hours of yeah. We've been did there. Did my MFA. Yeah. And yeah. didn't write for a long time afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Do you set aside time that you don't break no matter what? That was one thing I did is I picked a night a week, sometimes two nights a week, and no matter what, I would not change it for anyone in the world. It could have been Jesus, Buddha, and Moses <laughs> showing up at the door at the same time. You're like, you <laughs> 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 just cannot break that. You cannot break it. And more interestingly, I mean, this is stuff, conversations for me and my shrink, it's like, when I would break it, that's the, that's the work, too. Like, why would you break that? This thing that you treasure more than anything in the world, 
Why would you not travel? Why would you have this opportunity to sit here and go all over around the world by sitting right just at your desk and then sabotage it? So that became a question for me often because you know somebody would be like, can we come over for dinner? Be like, yeah. And then at midnight, be like, what happened? Right? right. So, I mean, if you're asking, I'm giving unsolicited advice. No, I'm asking for it. I would say make some dates with yourself and take them very seriously. And if you don't, ask yourself why you're not taking yourself so seriously. No, that's great. That's great. Ditto. And, well, no, sans the child single parent. <laughs> not full ditto. Um, but before I got my MFA, I, I worked a nine to five job. Um, and I have been known to complain now that I teach um, and now you know that the uh, internet has taken hold of yes. our lives and email in particular like I'm really I think you know it's kind of revolutionized things and then it's kind of just devastated everybody um, but I have said that I got more writing done when I worked in nine to five yeah. um, it's a lot more regimented but I you know was intentionally working a job I didn't care about. So there was something that I had to exert a lot of energy to maintain this kind of job status quo, um, which was, I don't go above executive assistant. Mm -hmm. I have no ambitions in this place. Give me my health insurance, give me my salary, give me my two weeks a year, that is my residency, right? Mm -hmm. And that's it. And when I got home, um, I wrote every night. It was urgent, it was important because I was around stupid people all day. <laughs> and it helped, right? And, and now, you know, it's, it's the absolute inverse um, with less boundaries, right? I get emails from students, yeah. I'm at school, I'm immersed in the thing that I love and care about, surrounded by people that are doing yeah. what I do. Um, and so it's a, I know this sounds like a don't teach commercial, um, but it is really important to kind of figure out how to do what Robin just said. Like you need to kind of um, really guard your time um, and protect it and don't apologize for it. You know, um, you don't even have to explain. You know, like, oh, what day? Oh, no, I can't. Can we pick another day? It's not even part of the discussion. Why can't you? It's not your business. You know, because I'm not, you know, you don't have to get into this whole, I mean, because that's the other part yeah. of, you know, justifying an artist's life, because then it's, it's easily diminished, right, in the eyes of other people. Like, well, you can do that any other, no, actually, I can't do it any other time. It has to, this is the day. You work around me, I'm not going to work around you. And it, it sounds jerky, but if you're not like that. In the world, you know, like I feel like, you know, hasn't been enough to be I was in college for like, I don't know, from like 18 to 30. So, you know, and then you get into the real world and you have, you're working 40 hours a week. You can't be that flexible at that time. Mm -hmm. Or else you don't create. You can't create. It keeps being pushed on the side. You know how people go to the gym? I don't go to the gym. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about this thing. I don't know what it is. But you know how people go to the gym religiously? I have my brother. He's 60. He looks like he's 30. He has played basketball every Saturday his whole life, period. He his whole team. Right? You cannot mess with it. Everybody knows. You cannot mess with my brother's Saturday mornings. But why is it for women, I think, it's probably true for men too, you know, that other people don't have as strong as boundaries or clarity around that. I mean, the thing that I'm talking about, too, is like they begin to teach me, and this is like 
my little shriek session, but it did begin to teach me more also about other ways in which I walk through the world and other ways in which I did not respect other people's boundaries or they respect mine, especially because of the internet, especially because of teaching. I mean, teaching is just one big nursing. <laughs> You're just constantly giving, 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 giving. You're not allowed to say, I don't have any more milk. You're never allowed to say, not ever. And learning how to navigate that, I mean, you, you think, we're, you know, you, like, I used to think, I think I'm talking about writing, but it became a whole, a much vaster conversation about how to move through the world and just yeah. be, you know, respectful, kind, and warm citizens. I think that was our time. That's a great place to end. Matisse Bryant has books as well. Oh, yeah. I have copies of Unexplained Presence. Um, I don't want to carry those home. Ten bucks. <laughs> I don't have a square. So, cash. Thank you.